maybe one or two key lessons that you learned on your journey today that sit with you? So I, I, I think that don't don't be afraid to uh, jump into something new, right? So and, and this, it might be easier said than done, and, and, and it all depends on people's appetite for risks, and, and it's something that might be a little bit personal, but genuinely trying to remove this fear of failure. Hello everyone and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast, your go-to for all things construction and property technology. On today's show we have Prakash Sangani, co-founder and CEO of Navatech Group and co-founder of Safety AI, a startup concentrating on the use of artificial intelligence to improve safety and productivity in our industry. In this episode we discuss digital transformation in construction, generative AI, construction tech in the UAE, quality of life there, and many more. If you're enjoying our podcast, please check us out on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you enjoyed, please leave us a review. This helps us to get more amazing guests to give you guys the best and most informative content on technology in the built world. And shout out to our sponsor, Beta. If you want to connect with some of the biggest players in the construction tech world, including tier one building contractors, some of the biggest construction tech companies, investors and advisors, Check them out by visiting www.d-beta.com and this is www.the-beta.com. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes Podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology, and business. All right, let's get this episode started. Prakash from London and now to the UAE. Tell us, how did it all happen? I think I've told this story quite a lot over different podcasts and that, so people might be bored listening to it if anybody ever listens to my podcast. But um, <laughs> <laughs> we definitely will. I started. I started in the UK um, working for a large contractor, Balfour Beatty. They kind of sponsored me through my university. Um, had a job as soon as I graduated, and really fortunate to have been like put on this graduate program, part of like these uh, star performer type of things that, and then that kind of, they push you through the ranks. And then I got an opportunity to go to India um, with Balfabi. Um, they were setting up a division there and then wanted to give exposure to that, to graduates and, and some of the sorry, young people within the company. And I kind of stuck my hand up saying, look, this will be quite interesting, right? Obviously I've got an Indian heritage. I never really worked or thought about working back in India. It was always kind of, this place that we would go every summer to meet our grandparents and meet family and stuff like that. And you had this perception of it being like poor and, 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 uh, and at the time, like this perception of like substandard quality. Right? And, and I went there with this same, and, I, and I'm quite embarrassed to say, had the same perception that all well, the people are going to be like, you know, not, not, not smart and or like not of the same standard as we have. And I went there and I was really surprised at the caliber of the people that, that were working. So I went and worked in Delhi and, and I am really embarrassed to say, to admit that, that I was shocked and surprised at the caliber of people working there, right? They were just as good, if not better than the people that I'd encountered working in the UK. And just shows you some of the kind of biases that you grow yeah. up with, right? Even, even though I come from an Indian background, I come from an Indian heritage, I still had this, I don't know, this notion that, that it was subpar. But anyway, I did a couple of months in India and then the person that was running the region at the mo at that time wanted to keep me in the region. And he goes, look, I want to keep you in the region. You can choose whether you want to work in Doha, Delhi or Dubai. And basically there's a job waiting for you. I thought, well, this, this, this sounds amazing. Um, and a, a couple of years before that, I'd come on holiday to Dubai 
and thought this place is amazing, right? It's like the Hollywood of construction, biggest, the widest, the deepest, the longest, great to work here one day, right? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, had this opportunity, they got, got given this opportunity to come, um, didn't really think about it too much. So in hindsight, me and my wife were a little bit naive. Uh, we, we never we never really thought like what we're going to do apart from work, like what we're going to do, uh, none of our friends are there, we've got no family, mm-hmm. like, as in, so we thought, okay, let's just go and give it a go. Uh, and like a lot of people do, they come with this mindset that we'll go and try it for a, a year or two and then come back. And we kind of had that, so let's give it a go for two years. And it's been 10 years and I'm still here. And and, and to be honest, I'm, I'm not really looking back as, as in there's nothing at the moment that wants me, that's telling me that I want to go back to the UK or go anywhere else from here. Mm-hmm. I think everyone says that Dubai is this bubble and uh, you end up like kind of in this in this false sense of like, this is what the world is like. And it's absolutely mm-hmm. not, you know, from the, from the, the lifestyle, from the tax-free living to like things like we get the we get our petrol delivered to our house. So a van comes. <laughs> what I've heard from friends for many years is that you get a lot of convenience from, from living over there, but it costs a lot as well. So even if you're making way more money than, for example, in the UK, and it's tax-free, <clears throat> then you, you just become so so convenient with this environment that you just spend so much money because everything is so easy. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's true. It's, it is a really expensive place to live, right? So yeah. Everyone says, oh, you've got tax-free, tax-free living and that. And, and you get, you, I, I guess in the UK, you get this perception of Dubai from some of the media, right? About this bling lifestyle and that. And it's not, there's lots and lots uh, of um, ordinary people, right? Like I would consider myself fairly ordinary who do that. And yes, you get these conveniences, but like you said, they come, they come at a price. So whatever kind of shortfall you have in having to pay taxes is actually made up in, in lots of other ways. There are things that like there's fees and things like that, that you end up paying for that kind of eating to that disposable income. Yeah. Okay. We'll touch on the uh, differences uh, between living in the UK and Dubai a little bit later, but maybe and let's touch on the construction and construction tech. What's the difference between the construction tech in the UK and construction tech in the UAE? I guess from a, a direct perspective, I, I've been out of the UK in market for 10 years. So it's not something that I probably, I would profess to be an expert about, but, but through the construction tech uh, ecosystem, right? So I'm part of this thing called the C-Tech Club. Um, it's run by this person called John Priestland. Um, he's doing a fantastic job at kind of curating construction tech startups and and, and kind of being this bridge between the old world and the new world. So old world being these giant organizations and then the new world being the construction tech startups. And from that perspective, if you just look at the raw numbers, there's a lot more construction technology startups in the UK than there are here in the Middle East, right? And it's, wow. it's something that um, we're actively trying to address. And, and I think part of that is the size of the market, the maturity of the market from an investment perspective, from a, an educational base, if you like. There's a lot, there's obviously a lot more universities in the UK who have had a long history of research and development and, and, and kind of nurturing technology startups to come out of them, with, whether they're from construction or not. There's this ecosystem, right? There's this process. And that's something that's still in, in its infancy, I think, in, in the UAE and, and in the region more broadly. So mm-hmm. the biggest differences I find is, is pure numbers. There's a lot more construction technology startups in the UK, Europe, and, and obviously US than there are in the Middle East. And that's something that I'm personally determined to change. Um, I, I founded my construction technology startup here in, in the UAE on purpose. Yeah. Did you, did you see, did you, like, was there any, any kind of, uh, inclination as to whether like people in the UAE are more open to tech adoption than perhaps in the UK. Are you able to speak on that? 
Yeah, I think again, I'm I'm obviously a little bit biased because I see it here, and and I'm and I'm in the like I'm I'm in the ecosystem. But I think generally the population is a lot younger in the region. So UAE and I and I class UAE and KSA as part of this region, mm-hmm. and, and that younger population just tends to be more tech savvy, right? They're, they're yeah. just native. Um, they're kind of um, born into a technological uh, world, and and I see that is now starting to kind of come into the workforce. So these, as these people start coming into the work, workforce, they're bringing the, this tech, tech knowledge, this digital literacy with them. And from that perspective, just simply because of the demographics, I think that we're seeing tech adoption in the region um, really accelerate. Where, how that compares to the UK, I'm just anecdotally, yeah. I feel like like it's really accelerating faster than it is in the, in the UK. All right. So in terms of construction tech, do you see like software part of the contact is developing or it's more like on the tangible stuff like robotics or an, any machinery? Which part of, of this of construction tech is, is kind of working there or booming? I think I think software. It's a much lower barrier to entry, lower lower internal in, uh, initial investment that's required to to get mm-hmm. up and running. And we already have ridiculously long sales cycles, right, within construction. Even when it comes to software, um, you, you couple that with uh, these things like like robotics or IoT sensors and, and and things like that. But I think the one part of hardware that's that's progressing is the hardware that's associated with the software that we're working with, right? So things like BIM meant that you needed to have higher spec laptops, higher spec, higher spec um, graphics cards and, and machines to be able to run models. Now you're seeing this with kind of AR and VR metaverse kind of uh, deployments, digital twins. And so that I think is starting to have, an, the, so the software usage and the use cases is having an influence on some of the hardware. And then if we talk about digital twins, the fact that a lot of them, the data is being fed into them or is going to be fed into them using IoT devices, that I think is that starting to spur a huge amount of kind of interest and adoption with, within that, within the kind of the deep tech and, and hard hardware tech. Sure. And Prakash, given your sort of varied background, I guess, in different cultures, different parts of the world and in different types of companies as well. So and obviously you 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 are owner of a startup, you also do some management consulting as well. Any maybe one or two key lessons that you've learned? On your journey to date, that sit with you. So I, I, I think like don't don't be afraid to uh, jump into something new, right? So and and this it might be easier said than done, and 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 it all depends on people's appetite for risks, and and it's something that might be a little bit personal, but genuinely trying to remove this fear of failure, I, I think it's something that coming from a construction background, it comes it kind of gets ingrained into you, right? Because mm-hmm. quite a dangerous thing, right? It, so if something goes wrong in construction, it can do a lot of damage. And, and potentially be fatal, right? And so yeah. it's the fear of failure is it kind of becomes ingrained and, and becomes part of the psyche of what you do. And it's really mm. difficult to remove. And, and that's not to say that you should be a, you should be gung-ho in everything that you do and, and take risks everywhere. But I think trying to not be afraid that if if something does go wrong, um, you can learn from it. And, and obviously, depending on the severity of what could go wrong, right? So I'm not talking about something going wrong on uh, when you're trying to put up a crane. But what I'm saying is if you're trying a new piece of software or trying a new piece of technology, if something goes wrong, then then you can learn something from it, right? So, mm-hmm. so learn something from the fact that this didn't, didn't, this didn't deploy properly or people didn't use it as well as we thought we were, they were going to use it. And I think so that that trying to get over some of that fear of, of fear of failure, I think that's that's one 
big lesson that I've learned. The other thing is just patience, right? I think that as an industry, we 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 are we're always trying to rush things. We're trying to finish jobs as quick as possible, and then in the same thing, we're trying to change the industry really, really, really quickly. And, and I think sometimes it, it's just things are going to take as long as they're going to take. And I was uh, reading an article recently in in the Economist, which which talked about like people change minds less quickly than entire societies do, right? And it talks about the fact that actual change happens when when the demographics of people coming through. Um, change. Um, so if we're trying to digitally transform, yes, there's only set, there's only so much we can do, but actually it's going to take a cultural shift and that cultural shift yeah. is, is going to happen to some of the things I alluded to before, where yeah. as digitally native people come into the industry, mm, those agree. changes will naturally happen, right? And yes. as, as, look, there's only so much influence we can have in trying to digitally transform yes. the industry. The rest of it's got to be carried by people, right? Yes, because right. we go with masses, right? If everyone going the certain direction, uh, yeah. Most of the people will follow, right? And that yeah. that's that's the moment where the change happens rather than some people just trying to do some stuff. Okay, so onto digital transformation. So having worked for, for example, Icom in the past and now having your own startup, how do you see large organizations how, uh, see the innovation and for sm for smaller startups? How would you compare these two? I think it's chalk and cheese, right? These large organizations, if I'm being really cynical, a lot of it is just lip service, right? It's, yeah, yeah. It, you have an innovation department so that you can put stuff on social media or write a report about mm -hmm. it or tell your board or tell the market that you're doing something, right? And and very little substantive innovation actually happens in these large organizations because look, ultimately, all, and particularly publicly traded organizations, they are beholden to their shareholders. They've got to deliver uh, EBITDA and profits, uh, like all of all of these stuff, and that doesn't go hand in hand with um, spending money on things that might not make you any money or might uh, potentially improve something in in two, three, four years time, right? And so I think those two things uh, are are incongruous. But that's not to say that I haven't seen it work. I've worked with some of the largest organizations, construction organizations in the world, and there's been pockets of innovation that have been amazing. But whereas startups, I think they are by their very nature, innovative, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the spark that creates an idea to come uh, or come up with the idea to become a startup is in itself usually an innovative idea, right? The, the thing that makes you go, and go on this journey and take the risks that you take. And so from that perspective, from its very kind of inception, a startup is innovative in its nature. And then typically a startup is associated with technology, not always, but typically it is. And so the type of people that you bring into that organization are innovative minded in the first place, right? Um, and so I think that's the biggest thing. And, and that, and that I think, is, is, is a really interesting thing that we're seeing happening. Uh, there's trends happening in the industry where these big, large organizations are creating corporate venture capital or innovation uh, teams that are working with startups. And I think that marry of, of those two different cultures and those two different sizes of organizations is going to be massively important for for anyone to succeed in the way that we innovate or the types of innovation that we see happening in the industry. Yeah, I agree with you, definitely. And Prakash, so on, on the subject of digital transformation, like even myself having you know been in this space for a while now and go to various conferences and speak to various people, it's like, I'm still not actually 100% certain what people mean when they go on, when they talk about digital transformation journey. I've seen many different opinions and I even, I can't remember I mentioned this on a podcast before, but I went to one where it was like, 
digitization, digitalization, digi-somethingation. Oh. I was just like <laughs> even more confused now. So uh, what's your definition? Paper to PDF. So I think the transformation is, is different for different organizations. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. But at, at its core, it, it, is, it is creating, storing, analyzing digital, digital data, right? It's becoming more data savvy. For me, dig, digital transformation is all about the data. So for a lot of organizations, it starts off with understanding where your data is coming from, where it's being stored. And then, then once you've done that, then you start looking at what you can do with it, right? How, how do you analyze it to make better decisions? How do you analyze it to reduce risk? And, and, and all of the other things that you can, that you, you can potentially do with it. So to, if I'm being, if I right, simplify it to its core and it's, a, it, it, and it's a lot more complex than that, I think digital transformation is all about learning what, where your data comes from and what you can do with it. And how does, so the follow-up question to that would be how someone succeeds on their journey, but sounds like it might just be not just a matter of collecting data, but also collecting it in such a way that it's actually useful. Yeah. So I, look, I think pe people have this perception that we're poor within the industry at collecting data or storing data, but we're not, right? We're, we're poor at digitally storing or collecting data, or we have been historically. But if you talk about data and data is drawings, it's forms, it's sketches. We've been doing that as an industry for decades, for centuries, right? Mm. Um, and all of that's data. We forget that that's data. It's just analog data. It's mm. data that is not that easy to analyze because it sits, sits in physical forms. But what we're seeing now is a lot more digital data, which we can do other things with. And so I think one of the key successes or one of the keys to success is the understanding of, like I mentioned before, like where does your data come from? Where is it being stored? And then once you get a handle and understanding of that, then looking at the use cases and what you can do with it. Yeah, yeah it makes good sense. You said that uh, this uh, sales cycle in construction <coughs> is insanely long. How do uh, startups sell their solutions to, to companies? Like what's the, <laughs> how to do it? How to make it short? If I had had the answer to that, I'd, yeah. I'd share the secrets. I don't know, to be honest. I think biggest challenge is that we treat procuring technology the same way as we treat procuring anything else as an industry, right? So when we're procuring contractors or consultants mm -hmm. or big pieces of plant, we've set up these procurement regimes and procurement processes mm -hmm. to procure those things. And our procurement teams are set up and trained and are learned to or taught to procure things in these ways. And you just can't do that with technology. You can't even if you look at the way you, you set up contracts, right? Like where you you have um, the type of due diligence that you would do when you want to hire a design consultant is not the same as what you do if you wanted to hire a, hire a or wanted to buy a piece of software, right? Um, it's completely different. The the terms and conditions that you need there are completely different. I think we as an industry haven't come to grips with that, and 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 even if you look at BIM, right? So BIMs have been around since my, my entire career, right? I've been working with BIM. It, it was very nascent when I first started and I've been working for, I don't know, 12, 13 years. And so BIM's been around for 13 years. It's still today, there isn't a standard form of contract that deals with BIM, right? Mm -hmm. Even there's things like what takes precedence. Is it BIM? Is it drawings? Is it the specifications? Is it the BOQ? Like there's not, there's no standardized way of, of being able to just pull a, a contract out and say, this is it. And people are still trying to figure it out and, and, are, and are trying to learn. So I think the, the challenge there and to try and to try and speed things up is organizations need to understand that they need to change the way that they buy technology and 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 it 
needs to be treated differently from the way that we buy other things. That's going to take a long, long, long time for, for people to change and, and, and for us to have these conversations with um, people that are not just looking at technology, right? We need to have conversations with the people that are doing procurement, the people that are doing legal. And often we kind of have conversations when we're talking about digital and we're talking about transformation and innovation, we just end up talking to each other, like other people who are digital, other people who are, who are in innovation departments. Very rarely do we bring in the, the, the legal guys or the procurement guys. We just, we, we see them as a service and, and, and just throw things over the fence to them, don't bring them along on the journey. Um, it's similar with IT as well, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's always this kind of crossover between digital and IT and they're two very distinct functions and but very, very connected. But I think they're a little bit closer and, and you're starting to see IT departments come along on this digital transformation journey and understand it. And in the same way, I think that, that to reduce the procurement cycles that we've got, which are ridiculous, I think we need to start having these conversations with these people. And do, do you, I don't know if this question will make sense, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think it might be the way that perhaps people are building the technology as well? Because in my head, it's very much a perception that like, you have a piece of software that you need for a project, right? Which make which means that you need it from the start all the way through to the finish. Whereas actually maybe people should be fo- focusing on, I don't know, halfway through the project or three quarters of the way through the project, or at least building so that this technology can be implemented in such a way that it's not required from start to finish. Because if you don't get it in the start, project might go on for two years and your sales cycle has gone from like overnight or whatever to two years yeah. down the line. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I never really thought of it like that. that my my horizon for uh, implementing any technology and and, and like how, when people ask me that like, what's 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 one of the best ways when you're implementing tech, uh, my I always tell them is to do it at the start of the project. Right. Mm. The one downside to what you're saying is right is once um, people have started a project, they'll find ways to do things mm-hmm. and they'll develop habits which you will find it so difficult to get them out. of. So mm-hmm. you go, if you go into a project after six months, they would have developed workarounds and processes mm-hmm. and shortcuts to get yeah. stuff done just because they have to, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Necessity is the mother of, of invention. And they'll, they'll be so wedded to the way that they're, that they're used to doing it, getting, bringing in a new piece of technology or, or another process to try and get them to change is so, 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 so difficult. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons why when, you, when pet tech is developed or, or products are developed or services are developed, they kind of look at it from a from a project project perspective, and I think the problem is bigger than what you're saying about about just looking at parts of projects. I think the fact that we look at the industry as a project based industry has its own issues as well, right? Yes. So we're kind of like you're almost always reinventing the wheel from from when you go from one project to another. We're not looking at it as a as a holistic entity. Yeah, I agree. It's compartmentalization. It's not good in that case. So yeah. Completely. Prakash, what what's, uh, what technologies do you think drive the digital temp, uh, transformation? Right now, I, th- I, I think it's been BIM, right? I, like plain and simple. And I don't think we're at the end of it. I would have hoped or I, I like to think that it's starting to become business as usual in, in a lot of organizations. And, and lots of people now know what it is and what it can do and what some of its limitations are. But you obviously still come across people who either never heard of it um, <laughs> or are still completely against it, right? They're, they're like, well, We've, we've been building for 50 years without ever seeing a 3D model and we've survived now. But, but it's, it, for me, it's the crux of lots of things and not because it's a 3D model, simply because 
the process of BIM is all about data, right? And, and I'm going to go back and like feel like I'm a broken record, but <laughs> in essence, it's all about managing data through the life cycle and, and then about how that data is kind of processed and governed and uh, interpreted by the different stakeholders along, along a, a life cycle of uh, an asset or a, a road or, or a, whatever it is, a building or an airport. And so yeah. I think, I think that, that, that having that basis of structuring your data, understanding what you can do with that data, uh, understanding who can access it, when they can access it and what it can be relied upon is, is the basis for any digital transformation. Mm-hmm. It's, it, again, it's about the data. So that, that is a fundamental driver. And then some of the, some of the things that are coming on top of that now are things like digital twins and metaverse and because you've got structured data, you can start doing things with AI and ML and analytics, right? Because you've got this, this well-structured and well-understood uh, data set. Yeah, sure. So, so strategy then would be start with BIM maybe. Yeah, I, I think I, to be honest, it's fundamental, right? And, and whereas maybe when I first moved to the region 10 years ago, it was one of these things that was still like part, partly done or done by really, really highly specialized groups of people. The, the skill sets, the talent pool that looks at BIM now is much, much larger. And the amount of resources that are out there to help you to implement this, the kind of use cases or the value drivers for it are well understood now, right? So mm. I'll give you an example. When I first came to the region, it was I was pushing BIM, right? I was trying to convince people. I had to do presentations, say this is going to be the ROI. This is how much it's going to cost you additionally on top of doing it traditionally. These are the, some of the benefits and this is how you're going to do it. Now it's the complete opposite on on the scale of projects that I tend to work on. Right, is a pull. BIM is almost a standard. Like you're you're expected to do it regardless of whether it's something that's a line item on a BOQ or not. It's it's kind of it's almost a given. And that's kind of the change that I've seen in the last kind of ten years. And do you see that BIM technology is going to like progress and improve in, in time, or or it feels like it is at a certain level at this moment and it's it's not changing that much? That's just my impression. I think it is. I think I think that obviously the rate of change slows down, right? So you, when you when it first came new, you, you have this massive massive rate of change, right? The rate of change is, is really high. And then you start, like I said, hoping that we're going to get into kind of some type of steady state business as usual. And so perhaps uh, we're, we're entering this kind of settled period. Um, and so the rate of change feels like it's slow. But I think there's improvements happening all the time, right? Um, the, the, the software um, every year gets additional additional features. The hardware that we use to kind of view these things and, and be able to do things with the data that we're generating is improving every single year. So, so I think that there's going to be change and improvements. Um, and I think with this, that the current kind of explosion of, of AI and generative AI and things like that, there's, you, we're gonna, you're going to hopefully see lots of change happening very, very quickly. Yeah, nicely, nicely flowing into our next subject of generative <laughs> AI. So Prakash, just your startup, Safety AI, that is, that is a generative AI company, right? As far as... Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So believe it or not, we will still have some people listening to this who don't quite understand the term generative AI. So could you just uh, briefly explain what that is? Yeah. So generative AI is a form of artificial intelligence that is used to create things, right? So it's used to create text or it's used to create images or videos or, or anything that is digitally renderable, right? Or I don't even know if renderable is a word, but anything <laughs> that, that, you can, that you can view or consume digitally generative AI has has the potential or ability to be able to create it. 
And that, that's kind of the distinction that yeah. I understand it. And I don't know if that's the textbook definition, but that's my kind of understanding of it. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Generates AI that generates something. But I think the, the, the key to it is, is that it, it generates digitally viewable things, right? It's that are digital. It's not, it's not going to generate you a brick wall. For example, yeah. there, there was a famous meme that was going around a couple of weeks ago, right? A couple of months ago. <laughs> <laughs> like chat gpt won't help me finish this building or something and that's not what it's designed to do that's not what it was ever built to do yeah i did, i actually saw that i think it was some some form of hoarding wasn't it yeah it's got a flag on it awesome. yeah yeah it actually annoyed me a bit because like you just said that's not what it was designed to do like they're not yeah. claiming to be able to do that hey. prakash what what does safety ai do and how does does it use uh, generative ai so the, the whole premise of safety.ai was to use artificial intelligence to try and help make health and safety much more intuitive and intelligent. And so what it does is it uses a chatbot very similar to ChatGPT. So we we came across this notion that putting a chatbot on top of this system would help people be more engaged with it and make it a much more intuitive interface. And, and actually the whole ChatGPT thing is a validation of, of, of our thinking. So we, we were, we've been working on this for about three, three and a half years now. And ChatGPT, the, the instance that you're kind of working with now or people are working with now is the fourth iteration of it. So GPT has been around for a long, long time, right? Uh, OpenAI's own GPT models, but no one knew anything about it or did anything with it and, until they put a chat interface over the top of it. Um, and so essentially taking that same kind of premise, right, is, is allowing people to interact with um, uh, a system or a piece of technology with a chatbot is what, is what safety.ai is all about. And so we use um, conversational interfaces. So you use the converse, the art of conversation to help both capture and disseminate information about safety and risks that are happening at a construction site. Yeah, nice. How, what other uses of uh, generative AI are there in construction that you perhaps have come across or are aware of? So I think it's just at the beginning. So people are still trying to like, like poke it and see, see what it can be used for. But I've seen some really interesting use cases. So... There's obvious ones about helping you write emails or helping you write claims letters, right? To structure your claims letters and things like that. Um, I've seen it being used in, in lots of different types of chatbots um, to do different things, uh, to manage like the way that you interact with documentation, right? So um, we're, even us at safety.ai, we're experimenting with how do you make safety documentation more accessible, right? It's mm-hmm. usually traditionally these, these massive wads of documents that nobody ever reads and it's just done as a tick box exercise, but there's actually some really useful information in some of these, right? Or mm-hmm. where it's not so useful, you don't know because no one ever reads it. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to try and bring this to life using using generative AI and, and, and using some of these tools and techniques. And, and I think we're gonna start seeing more and more of it um, help with the design process. So I've seen a few articles and read a few kind of research papers where people are using these generative AI tools hmm. yeah. to first of all, scope and uh, scope out the requirements of say, I don't know, a master plan or a building, and then put that into um, like mid journey or something like that to then to then render those those kind of things, right? And so and you, it's not a massive leap then to then take it forward and start detailing out some of the elements of it and some of uh, some of the aspects of the design. So I think I think we're we're scratching the surface of what's possible with it with this technology at the moment. So yeah. for example, Beam has been with us for decades now and it's still especially in the part of construction I work at <coughs> small medium <coughs> sorry uh, size projects. It is not widely used at all. So is it going to take uh, is generative AI going to be faster in in adoption? 
amongst people? I would, I would hope so, right? So I think if you look at what um, ChatGPT has done for AI in general and generative AI, it, it's made it's democratized it, right? It's made it accessible to people. It's broken down some of these barriers and and really opened itself up in a way that BIM just hasn't been able to do. It's BIM still kind of seen, as you said, it's the preserve of some of the larger projects or some of the more sophisticated areas of our of our industry, and and it's still seen with sometimes with contempt or with a bit of weariness from 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 other parts of the industry. And I think there's I'm hoping that as as generative AI and BIM come together, somehow you're going to see this open up, right? And, and for BIM to become a lot more accessible to people. I completely agree. As like the, one of the challenges I find with BIM when we work in, on projects is that it's so complex and you need to be a very, very good specialist to, to use it very well. So that's one of the barriers to entry, really, and to make it more widely used. You need to be very, very good to use it very well. And to be Simple useful for that. others to cooperate on the model as well. I think that that's a perception though, right? There's this perception that this complex rocket scientist like, like type of thing. And you need to have you know, 10, 10 degrees to be able to run the software and that. But honestly, my experience of it, it, it that is not. And, and when you show people that the, how simple it is to navigate and move, the, move through these things, I think, I think that, that that perception or that fear of it goes away. And, and especially, I think, uh, talking, going back to some of the themes we were talking about before, is that is that this next generation who's used to navigating around games and mm. walking like through Fortnite and like, some of these things like Roblox and all of this stuff, as that generation starts coming through and, and maturing and becoming leaders in this space, that you're automatically going to see some of yeah. some of this kind of fear towards this towards this type of technology disappear. Right, it, it's not even going to register. You would have said this about uh, three years ago. Um, trying to get people to be on video calls, right? Um, and then COVID happened, and the, even the most ardent, um, hardened, uh, <laughs> mature people on site were ending up using Teams, right? And uh, but before that, before before the whole pandemic, you would never have expected them to take that one. Totally agree. Smakash, can you give us a crazily, crazily? Is that I don't even sure we're just making up some words here, but a crazy. Wild prediction for uh, AI in construction. Don't worry, this never ages well. But... Yeah, it can go two ways, right? Either either it's going to come across prophetic or it's going to come across pathetic, right? <laughs> nice. So generative AI is going to become pervasive. It's going to touch every single part of what we do across the not just in the, not just in construction, but in in all walks of life, in in lots of aspects of what we do. So I think the thing that I would, if you if you think if you ask me what prediction I would like to see come true is I would love to see generative AI be used to help us produce designs quicker, smarter, and, and, and just allow our people to do what they do best and be creative, right? So there's this fear that generative AI is going to take over and lots of people are going to lose their jobs. <clears throat> and it's a fear, I think, that, that happens every time new tools come out. I, I think I've seen, I've seen some articles or some pictures about when the calculator first came out, all these teachers went on strike with Martin, Martin right? And all these lecturers and teachers and that having this debate uh, about it. I think the debate's healthy. I think we should definitely be having the debate. But what I would like to see, going back to the prediction, is, is that these tools are used as tools to uh, supplement and augment what we do as an industry. So, so architects or designers or structural engineers are using these tools to help them do what they do more effectively more efficiently and improve the quality of those outputs so that that we can do more with those same people not that we're going to get rid of them right you know you know i don't think that it's a case that we'll we'll, we'll half the kind of workforce but what we should be looking at doing is 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 
stopping them from doing the menial, mundane, yeah. repetitive stuff and mm-hmm. give, give them more time doing the creative, ingenious, innovative stuff. Mm-hmm. Work to the strengths. Interesting. I just want to take, uh, take your, get your thoughts on something. So if we remove all of this mundane stuff uh, that humans don't want to do, then is it enough stuff that humans can do, which is creative <laughs> and uh, challenging? <laughs> because it all... Unless you go back to foraging. All, all of these, all of the uh, advancement in technology, it brings us to getting things, getting more things done. So you kind of uh, eliminate one activity. So you can, so you now know that you can. That's right. So, so once you eliminate uh, some activities, which, uh, which will be done by AI or some automatizations, then we, we suddenly jump on. Okay, so we can, we, I can now do this, 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 and that, and you still squeeze your your calendar, your task list, uh, and you add something, something more. And so yep. like hmm. very broad question, how good is that for us, for humans? Yeah, but I, I think we'll find something else to do, right? You could have this argument about uh, everything in the history, right? Like one, before we used to have a horse and cart and travel everywhere. Now we travel by cars. And so that saved that time. It's not to say then we've got bored, right? In that, in the age of time, we found something else to do. And similarly, we used to, we used to cross oceans by ships. Now we do them by planes. Right. And so we've saved that time that it takes from, to get from one place to another. I, I'm just taking transport as an example, um, as a tool to help us save time. We've, we supplement that time, but we find other things to do. I think if, if, if there's anything that we can say about the kind of uh, human nature is that it's, we're adaptive. Right. So mm-hmm. once we find this time or save this time doing something, we'll, we'll go and do something else. I think there's also a case that perhaps we're, we're getting to a stage where we're just too busy. And so trying to get some of that time back to do recreational activities or like spend time doing things that are not work, I think that's an important thing. So there's this whole debate about the four-day working week and, and all these things, right? And, and actually, like with Sharjah, which is the next Emirate across, along from Dubai, has, mm-hmm. has had the four-day working week um, since uh, the, the January before last, right? And, and they're showing loads of benefits one of the mm. most interesting benefits, this wasn't planned, but it's about transportation again, is that they reduced the amount of road accidents by 60% or something, mm-hmm. simply because there's less people having to commute in a rush on a Friday, right? So a completely mm. unexpected uh, outcomes from mm. just moving to a four-day week, right? Uh, I know we're, I guess, digressing a little bit, but yeah, that's a good point. The, point, the point I'm trying to make is just by saying that we're going to save time doing this thing, and uh, is there... Is there enough things for us to do, right? I think we'll find something else to do. Uh, they, they, we're never, it's never going to be a thing that we'll suddenly end up handing everything over to automation and robotics and have nothing to do and, and end up with, I think uh, there's, there's, a, there's a Disney film or something, right? Where all the people end up fat moving around, moving around on these floating uh, mobility scooters and things like that because, because everything's automated. Everything in, in the balance. That's right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's move on to some off-topic questions. Uh, Martin, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. So uh, I will go back to the quality of life, actually, and uh, how you how would you compare it? So living in London and Dubai again, as personally, uh, me and five films are thinking about moving there to Dubai sooner or later. So um, yeah, there are some crazy statistics, broadly speaking. And not that I belong to these statistics, because the statistics are about millionaires who are, <laughs> who are living in countries like uh, Russia, China, uh, United Kingdom as well, and uh, moving to Dubai. So Dubai, so UAE broadly is a country which with uh, the most, the, the largest number of arriving high net worth individuals yeah, in the world. 
in the last, I think it was, it was the data from last two years. So apart from obviously tax havens, um, which is great benefit, what are the good sides of living in, in the UAE? For me personally, the biggest thing is the security. Right, is is this? Uh, there's there's very little fear of crime here. It's not it's not that it doesn't exist, but it's so small, and that makes a huge difference, right? The fact that you can leave your car unlocked or your door unlocked, or you can leave your phone on the table when you go out to eat and go to the bathroom, and it'll still be there when you get back. I know these are small things, but they they are big when you think about the level of paranoia that gets built up in you when you're having to do that, right? Right. I I come back to the UK and and everyone's got CCTV cameras set up in their houses. And, and every time there's a little rustle or a cat runs past, it dings them on the phone and they're all looking at it, who's, who's, who's moving into my front yard. Like, that, that level of kind of paranoia, I don't think it's healthy, right? And, and it's caused by this, this lack of feeling of security. And so that for me is a big thing. I think this place has really got that feeling of, of, of safety and security from, from that perspective, from the, the fact that you can walk around in the middle of the night and not feel like you're going to get mugged or stabbed or shot which which in some parts of the world is not something unfortunately that that you can say that can happen so i think that's part of it and that's to do with lifestyle the other thing is the weather i think that although it does get really really, really hot but that's only for like three months of the year and the rest of the time it's pretty pleasant and i think again i'm talking personally being able to see the sun 300 odd days of the year makes yeah. a huge difference to you psychologically, mm-hmm. right? I think mm-hmm. being being in an area or living somewhere where you're constantly it's constantly cloudy and gloomy, I think that has an effect on people's psyche. It has a people. It has an effect. It certainly does on me, and so I think that makes that makes a huge difference. The the tax free stuff, as we discussed before, I don't think that that is a huge driver for people to stay. It might be a big driver for people to come. But for, to get people to stay, it, it gets old very, very quickly. And like we said, it's quite expensive to live here. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it might the, the tax haven status or the, the tax-free status might be a reason to attract people, but it's definitely not, not the thing that's retaining people. I think all these other factors um, are the thing that retains people. And it is a very cosmopolitan place. There's people like, like the, you were saying, the statistics for people from all around the world coming here. It's a real hodgepodge of, of cultures and communities and demographics. And like it, it's, it's, it's a real melting pot. As, as an example, I've learned about um, festivals that happen in India here, right? And I, I get, I've, I'm, I'm from Indian heritage, and which I never knew existed. I've only learned about them because there's people from that part of India that are here mm-hmm. and they celebrate, you know? And so there's, there's, there's simple things like that that my kids get exposed to compared, compared to what I got exposed to, even though I grew up in London, which was pretty cosmopolitan and, and pretty diverse. Yeah, nice. Prakash, and one of your other things you do is, is um, board advisory. So what does a board advisor do and how do you become one? I don't know how you become one. There are some services out there which basically look to become non-execs. So as you can imagine, we have people trying to create a service out of everything. Genuinely, there's, there's kind of companies that act as an agent almost between companies that are looking for non-execs and, 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 and board advisors and, and then people who have these skill sets. And I think the biggest thing that I think or I, I hope and feel that I do or give to some of the, these boards that I advise is the benefit of my experience, right? Um, my, my network, um, access to the people that I know or the people that I've worked with um, and, and just the things that I've been through to help them to succeed. And, and I think 
the, if you're asking like, what do you need to be to 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 do to become one, I think you, you probably just need to have some experience, some life experience going through. Um, to get older. So, sorry, say that again. You need to get older. Yeah, or, or it doesn't necessarily have to be age, but you just have experiences. And I, I think that goes back to some of the things at the beginning is about taking risks, right? It's about, mm. about doing things. You're, you're, never, you're never going to know what you don't know unless you go and do something, right? Mm. And if you, if you keep on doing the same thing over and over again, I, I think you, you, you become very narrow. And so I think it is about having this broad set of expertise or a set of experiences and then being willing to share it. You have, I think you have to be generous with your time and uh, share those things and share your network. Sure. Sounds good. Cool. All right, Prakash. So thanks for joining us today. Uh, one last question really is where can people find out more about you and your endeavors? So LinkedIn is probably a great way. Pretty active on LinkedIn. And some people might say too active. Uh, get bored with seeing my face come up. But I think that's that's a great way. So... Um, yeah, add me, add me on LinkedIn, follow, follow Navatech group um, or safety.ai on any of the socials. I think that's, that's probably a great way. I do try and uh, reply to all the messages that I get on LinkedIn. I do get quite a lot of them. I do, I do try if anybody asks for anything or requests something, I'll, I, even if I can't do it, I'll tell people that I can't do it. So I, think, I guess LinkedIn is probably the best way to, to try and, to try and get in touch and uh, kind of interact with me. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sounds cool. Good. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I oh, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode.